you're tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It's been about a year and a half since the Navy began flushing close to 5 million gallons of water from its Red Hill shaft to get rid of any fuel contaminants in our drinking water system. HBR has learned that the military reduced that volume to just under 2 million gallons two weeks ago. This morning, we talked to Sarah Moody, Environmental Deputy for Strategic Operations at Naval Facilities Engineering Systems Command, about what happens going forward. Following the uh, fuel release that impacted the aquifer in November of 2021, uh, the Department of Health signed an emergency order that basically stated that the Navy needed to pump the Red Hill shaft on a continuous basis to create what we call a capture zone, which basically is like a straw drawing on a sponge to create liquid movement or water movement towards the Red Hill shaft. And so in January 29th of 2022, the Navy, the Navy was able to start up a series of GAC units, which are granulated activated carbon filters, which are essentially our large Brita filters uh, outside the Red Hill shaft so that they could pump the Red Hill shaft on a regular basis, but be able to run that water through a filtration system to ensure that it's clean before entering the Halava stream nearby. So we have what's called a NIPTES permit or a, uh, an output permit where we sample that water on a regular basis every four hours to make sure it's clean and meets safe standards for the environment. Since that point, we've been pumping at a rate of about 4.5 million gallons a day, which the max capacity for that pump and for the permit for that shaft is 5 million gallons a day. And so we've been doing that to maintain that capture zone. But as the contamination has reduced in the Red Hill shaft, and we've seen a significant reduction in any samples that indicate contamination in that area, we began to discuss with the Department of Health and the Environmental Protection Agency about a plan to reduce that pumping to show if we could still maintain that capture zone, keep those low-level samples, while hearing the community to reduce the use of water at the Red Hill shaft. So in, uh, in April, we got approval from the Department of Health to start a plan where we would reduce pumping. We initially started on May 1st, uh, reduced down to an average of 3 million gallons a day. And then on May 23rd, we dropped that to 1.8 million gallons a day. And we've been doing that uh, so far in June, and we'll be doing that until the 20th of June, at which point we'll submit the data to the Department of Health and the EPA for them to review and make it a final decision if we can permanently go to that 1.8 rate. That's great news because we are getting into the summer. And when I talked to the Board of Water Supply Chief Engineer Ernie Lau the other night, he had said that, you know, initially when all this happened and he put out the call to conserve, the community did do that. And so our, our usage is down, but if we had all this additional flushing, it is a concern going into the summer months. Absolutely. And that is exactly why we have prioritized this plan and we will continue to do everything we can to reduce that flow rate and maintain safety in the aquifer. So when do you expect to get the okay to see if this 1.8 million holds? We can't predict exactly how long DOH and EPA will take, but we plan to submit that data immediately upon receipt later this month, early July. So hopefully that process for approval will be pretty quick. I know that there were calls to possibly reuse some of that water that was being flushed early on, let's say on landscaping, you know, to water the golf courses, you know, because they did cut back on the usage in those areas uh, there uh, on and around the base. We had a study done on the possibilities of how we could reuse the water, and, and they've done a full analysis. Our primary challenge is that the piping structure in that area is only for drinking water, And so it would take a considerable amount of time to build the infrastructure to pipe it down to where the golf golf courses are located. So still on the table for consideration, but not something that we can do immediately at this time. Okay, but you are continuing to do the testing on a regular basis of the water that's being uh, filtered? Yes, we test every four hours with a quick analyzer, and then we test every week. We send a full set of samples to the lab on the mainland for a full analysis. And we have seen uh, no indication of any contamination leaving that side of the GACs going into the lava stream. And we have seen a significant reduction of any TPH or any petroleum products being detected at the Red Hill shaft over the last year. And what can you tell us about the granulated carbon filters? You know, how often are those filters changed out? I mean, those are pretty big tanks. 
They are very big tanks. We actually just installed a brand new set of tanks, kind of an updated model to ensure that we had uh, new potable quality tanks that had never been used in any kind of previous event. Those were just installed. That was completed last month. So there's eight of those tanks. And then we've committed to changing the granulated activated carbon product every six months. So we do a process where we dry that product out um, and we dispose of it properly, and then we put new product in. And those tanks are also going to have a resin finish, which can handle even more contaminants, such as, as if PFAS were present. The current plan is if we can get agreement that the 1.8 million average is sufficient, we'll hold at that value until at least until the tanks are defueled, and then we will reevaluate as the Department of Health decides what's next with the emergency order. What, what kind of testing is being done at the mouth of the stream? So we have a couple of activities underway. They have ecological testing that occurs at the stream on a regular basis to make sure that we're not making any impacts to the environment, to any uh, animals or plant life in that area. And then they also continue to test it for contaminants as, they're, as associated with all environmental action levels. So not only TPH, but any other contaminants that may have an environmental action level. And if you've seen that stream in person before the point where the GAC water enters, it's pretty dry. So it's, it doesn't really have a, a steady flow at that point. So it's kind of just adding water to a dry basin at that point until it flows into the ocean from there. And are there any studies on the marine life being done at the mouth of the stream where it goes into Pearl Harbor? Yes. By the University of Hawaii, they've been doing marine life studies and making sure that we're not making any impacts at the line where it enters the harbor. And do we have any of those reports back yet? I have not personally reviewed them, so I don't feel like I can confidently speak to them. But it's not been brought to our attention by the university that there is any significant concern. In the Red Hill area, we are currently expanding our monitoring well network for the purpose of increasing the knowledge that we have on the aquifer and monitoring any contamination that may be in the aquifer. So when this all started in response to the emergency order, we were sampling 21 wells on a weekly basis under the notice of interest. And so as a part of that emergency order, we committed to adding 22 additional monitoring wells in in and around Red Hill and in the greater surrounding area to protect the local drinking water sources. So we've completed nine of those wells thus far. We have four currently underway, and we have nine more that we're working with uh, local landowners and through the permitting process to try to get those real estate agreements in place so that we can meet our goal of having all those wells installed by February of 2024. That's coming up quick. Yes, ma'am. We have drillers running uh, constantly, multiple rigs at a time. It's a high priority for the Navy. That was Sarah Moody, Environmental Director for Strategic Operations at the Naval Facilities Engineering Systems Command. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. As Kilauea resumes eruption in Puna, we're going back to another eruption event that threatened a different Hawaii island community. It was a moment in time when American pilots undertook a desperate mission to save a city under siege by lava flows. In December of 1935, Hilo was under imminent threat from a fast-moving lava flow originating from Mauna Loa's northeast rift zone. Moving at the rapid pace of one mile a day, authorities decided drastic action was needed to save the city of over 15,000. Two volcanologists from the Hawaii Volcano Observatory suggested a plan that sounds outlandish today. Use bombs dropped from military planes to divert the flow. The Army approved the mission and on December 27, 1935, charged it to an officer who would later go on to great fame in World War II. 
If you can tell us the name of this future war hero, you will be today's winner. Call 808-941-3689 or call 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right scores an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii and its Community Giving Initiative. Learn more about how this program is supporting nonprofits focusing on affordable housing projects at nairithawaii.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Dr. Deborah Zucker, author of Vitality Map. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about a guide to deep health, joyful self-care, and resilient well-being. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the Chamber of Sustainable Commerce, a network of businesses striving to sustain workers, communities, and the environment, with a Pauhana mixer tonight on Kauai at Napali Brewing Company, chamberofsustainablecommerce.org. June marks National Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder Month, and a new project in the islands aims to help military personnel deal with PTSD and other mental health challenges. It's a partnership between the Army and the University of Hawaii students to develop and design telebehavioral health support for soldiers when they're deployed or participating in field training. Army Captain John Voss is with the 25th Infantry Division and is a behavioral health officer at Schofield Barracks. He's been instrumental in getting the project off the ground. The conversations Russell Subiano talked with Captain Voss earlier today. Can you share with us any numbers you might have regarding how many of our soldiers deal with issues affecting their mental health and what the potential long-term effects are on both soldiers and their families? The numbers on PTSD are a little tricky to iron out because what some people mean by PTSD is different than what other people mean. And it's not somewhat of a misnomer. It's easy to think of PTSD as kind of binary. You either have it or you don't. But really, PTSD is just a a way that people deal with stress that becomes what we call maladaptive. And so the, the way everybody deals with stress likely has ways that we can improve on it. And the reason we develop the different types of coping mechanisms or coping skills that we have is because at one point they were helpful for us. So oftentimes when somebody goes through a really traumatic or dangerous or violent experience, the way you deal with that in the moment can often help you, but then your context changes. And if you continue to use those same habits or techniques, they can become maladaptive. So to some extent, probably all of us deal with something like that in our lives. And for soldiers, as is the case with everybody, the point of behavioral health care or mental health care is to enable the soldier to become the best version of themselves they can be. And the goal is to be able to provide this type of care, skill development, counseling, therapy, whatever. So that's kind of what we're trying to do. I think when people on the outside think about our soldiers and PTSD and other mental health issues that they encounter, I think many people just assume that they get it through experience in combat. But what are some of the root causes outside of combat? Of course, life can be a really stressful, hard experience for all of us. And whether that began for you with some hard experiences in childhood or hard things that you're going through, you get into a a car accident, anything that requires you to rely on skills for survival or rely on coping mechanisms or techniques that help in one scenario but are not helpful when they become the only mechanism you have, well, that can develop into PTSD. And if you don't process through those 
memories or process through those experiences, if you have a reason to just continue to avoid them, like we all do, there's stigma against learning about or working on those areas of yourself, well, then that can develop into progressively worse and worse responses to the stresses in our lives that continue to present themselves new. I imagine that the Army and and the military in general has several different avenues for treatment available for soldiers to seek out. But as we move further into the digital age, we're seeing the medical community expand options for receiving treatment for a variety of ailments. One option that continues to get a foothold here and abroad is telehealth, the ability to connect with a physician over long distances via the internet or, or other means. I know the Army is partnering with UH students to help expand access to telebehavioral health support for soldiers. Can you share more about what that project is about? Certainly. And build off the point you made, the Army really has done an incredible job of building out kind of a menu of resources, whether that's counseling or more intense therapy, behavioral techniques, some training or learning that soldiers can do on their own. There is a menu and it's really grown in its scientific validity. And the Army's invested really heavily in this because it knows that the more psychologically fit you are, the more capable of a soldier you are. So it's a win-win scenario for everybody involved. In the wake of COVID, the virtual and tele-behavioral health capabilities have really ballooned. And again, there's a lot of good research coming out that shows the validity of that and more techniques they're showing a lot of promise. And so what we're trying to do is continue to expand the menu of options that we have for soldiers so that not only when they're in what we call a garrison environment or when they're on Oahu, but also when they leave island, whether it's for a training mission or to participate in some of these international exercises with our international partners throughout the Pacific, we want to continue to give them access to those resources. And fortunately, with the growth of these virtual capabilities, the technical aspect of that Already. That problem has largely been solved. Now, thanks to some of our partnership with University of Hawaii and the opportunity to think critically about these systems, University of Hawaii is helping us build out policy implications, the procedural processes for how to make that happen. Just because the technical aspect exists doesn't mean that we really know how to make it a reliable capability. And once we get there, then that's when leaders the medical community and leaders in the operational community can plan for it and expect it so that we know when we send soldiers to Australia or to the Philippines that it's something that we can expect they'll have access to forward and we can plan for before going. So this project is looking at creating opportunities for for soldiers to continue behavioral treatment or or mental health treatment via the telehealth type of system. How did it start? How did the Army connect with these UH students to start putting this project together? How did that come about? The 25th Infantry Division at Schofield Barracks has an innovation cell called the Lightning Labs. And I I had reached out to the Lightning Labs because I was kicking around this idea of how do we increase our use of some of these digital platforms and they have a connection to University of Hawaii. It's a fairly recent, just in the past couple of years. 2021, I think, is when this relationship got established. So they've got me in contact with the Hacking for Defense class out of University of Hawaii at Manoa. And from there, we were off and running. They, they picked it up right away. And a group of five students worked really diligently on it for the whole semester culminating in a trip out to the Philippines where there was a exercise going on where the students got to test and implement some of these procedures that they had been developing and then see it in real life and then come back and consolidate all of their learning and all of the exploration and creativity that they had done throughout the semester. And they, they drafted up then a, a policy that they were able to give us to, to work through our channels for ultimately to be able to implement a virtual telehealth capability um, across the division. When I think about the military using telebehavioral health or telehealth avenues, how do you overcome the challenge of both HIPAA laws and national security considerations? Those are uh, sticky problems to solve. And oftentimes when you are in that life, when you're working in the behavioral health field every day, sometimes you can view those problems as, as barriers or as, as 
things that inhibit action. And obviously all that stuff exists for really good, valuable reasons. And so one of the big values that the UH students brought is they came to this problem set without some of the assumptions that get built into your your frame of thinking when you work with every day. They were able to ask genuine questions. They were able to propose novel solutions to work through some of these challenges that when you are working in a system every day, you don't think about it as creatively as maybe you think you do. So one of the big values that the Army got out of this partnership is to have people come in and think novelly about these barriers or perceived barriers and show us ways that maybe they're not as much of a barrier as, as you're tempted to think of them as. Fortunately, right now, we're in a training environment with this capability. So we are able to crawl and walk our way forward before we get into a running scenario where we're wrestling through a lot of the implications with regard to operation security, et cetera. With the work that the University of Hawaii students are doing now, we're helping to build the framework of experience and procedural knowledge that will be necessary for us to be able to solve some of these bigger problems as we continue to move the project forward. I know the project is still at its outset. Ultimately, is this something that can be expanded across all branches of the military? And if so, what do you hope the outcome of the project will be? What is the ideal scenario for our soldiers and their ability to process the mental impacts of the job? That's definitely the idea. As we went through the beginning parts of this project with the University of Hawaii team, we went through this process that we in the military call problem framing. And that's where you just have a lot of conversations with various people. You begin to fill out your knowledge of the, kind of the terrain. And during that process, it was obvious that there's a large appetite for this type of capability on both the medical side, the soldier side, and on the command side. And so in the meantime, everyone very busy with lots of equally important requirements and having a little bit extra horsepower from the students at a University of Hawaii, adding energy to the process, having these conversations, we're able to build momentum to actually get this capability that kind of everybody wants actually off the ground. And as we move forward, we're building the system so that it can become widely scalable. You know, our first gate will be scalable through the 25th Infantry Division. And then once we demonstrate that there's value in that system, it's reliable, it, it works, it improves the capability of the soldier and the unit, then that gives us the ammunition to bring this to a larger audience across the Army. It just takes some work to get there, but I'm confident that we are on track. Thank you so much for your time, Captain Foss. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, thank you. And big thank you to the University of Hawaii team. Uh, we're excited about where it can take us and what it can do for the Army. Thank you. That was Army Captain John Voss talking with HPR's Russell Subiano about a new collaboration between the Army and UH students to provide telebehavioral health support for soldiers. Today's Reality Check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat looks at the homeless situation in Kona. Reporter Paula Dobbin joins us. To sweep or not to sweep? Good morning, Paula. Good morning, Catherine. And you were up bright and early at, what, 3 o'clock this morning to get out there to, to see what was going on? Um, well, it was yesterday. Uh, I think I got up at 3.30. Um, yeah, the the operation started at around 4.30 in the morning, um, 4.45 um, yeah, it was a pretty early morning. Um, was there for a few hours and watched the events unfold. And I know that the, this was a situation that the ACLU had complained to the mayor about, warning that you know maybe these sweeps were not legal. Yes, um, they had sent a demand letter. I believe it was on Monday to the county, um, <clears throat> asking the county to not go forward with this enforcement operation. Um, the the critics call them sweeps, but um, the mayor uh, bristles at that. You know, he calls them enforcement actions, and that 
you know, it's just a matter of um, enforcing the law that you're not supposed to, um, you know, camp at these public places. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a legal dispute underway, not just here, but in many other jurisdictions where police take these enforcement actions. Um, <clears throat> there had been a ruling uh, in a case called Martin versus Boise um, by the Ninth Circuit that basically said that if there's not adequate uh, shelter space, you cannot uh, forcibly remove people from sleeping in public places. Um, so that's the case that the ACLU is citing um, in its demand letter to the county. And was this a large encampment that they were trying to break up there at the aquatic center? Um, well, by the time this happened yesterday, many people had actually moved on because the homeless service providers for the past week had been like warning people that, <clears throat> you know, the police are going to be coming uh, in this pre-dawn operation, um, you know, yesterday. So, you know, it's time to find um, spaces elsewhere to stay or, you know, we can help you with shelter or whatever. But they, they had been working on that. Um, for about a week um, before this happened yesterday. So by the time the police got there yesterday, there was probably a little under 20 people that were camping. And did anybody take up the county's offer to, you know, uh, go to emergency shelters or any bed space that was available? Yeah, I, I think around 13 of them did. Um, don't quote me on that, but a fair number of them did. Um, you know, the, the service providers were able to rustle up beds um, there were certain people that also uh, took advantage of plane tickets to fly back to the continent and be with family there. Um, so, um, yeah, so, you know, solution, some short-term solutions were found, uh, may, maybe long-term, we'll see. But, um, you know, it's, it's a pretty entrenched problem. Um, it's especially hard to tackle here in a, in a really high-cost part of the country, um, you know, this this is like the costliest place to live in the United States. So like finding affordable housing here uh, is difficult at best. And so, gosh, I mean, what did the ACLU, you know, have to say? I mean, if the county did actually have some, you know, bed space available and there were some takers. Um, they said that they're weighing all their options. You know, that that's something that will be sorted out probably in court. Um, but... Um, you know, I think for the service providers, what, what they're trying to do is just, you know, make the best of a bad situation and just try to, like, find services for these people, not not just bed space, but, you know, counseling, rehab, um, you know, all the various sorts of things that can help them get back on their feet. Yeah, all the wraparound services. And I don't know, were there very many families with dogs, with pets? Oh, yeah, there was definitely a fair, mon fair number of people with pets. Um, and... Um, you know, like when I first actually approached one of the tents um, to try to interview um, a couple, they had a big uh, pit bull that was barking at me. Fortunately, it was on a leash, so <laughs> I didn't get bitten or anything like that. Um, but, you know, other other dogs were, were very pleasant and mild-mannered. <laughs> well, and, and um, I'm, I'm sure it's rough, too, for the, uh, the, the county workers, you know, they're there uh, picking up the trash or, or the officers, you know, as they're out there responding to help. Yeah, I mean, you know, I have to say the officers were very gentle in their approach. You know, they, they were very uh, kind and, you know, were handing out, like, trash bags. And, and you know, they also mentioned that there are these um, mats and shipping containers that are available to store people's belongings for up to a month. Um, so, you know, it, it was not, like... Um, there was no violence or arrests or anything like that. It was just, it's just unfortunate, you know, that these things have to take place. Yes, and sadly, you know, the numbers of the homeless seems to just increase. But thank you so much, Paula. You bet. Take care. That was uh, reporter Paula Dobbin with today's Reality Check. You can read her full story at civilbeat.org. Today on The Daily, day after day, more and more long-shot Republicans are throwing their hat into the 2024 presidential race, despite a set of seemingly insurmountable obstacles in their way. We offer a guide to the new crop of candidates and their rationales for running. That's today on The Daily. 
from the New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for the conversation comes from Skog Rasmussen, LLC. Designing solutions for community engagement, project strategy, government relations, and grants services. Learn more at skograsmussen.com. The name means peaceful refuge, but some say the 400-acre Ho'umalahia Botanical Gardens is becoming not so tranquil. HPR reporter Cassie Ordonio spent some time at the Botanical Gardens recently and joins us in studio this morning. Hi. Good morning, Catherine. How are you doing? beautiful place, isn't it, back there? Oh, my gosh. It is beautiful, but I forgot how hot and humid it gets on the windward side, so visiting there wasn't so fun if you're not dressed appropriately. I came there with my HPR shirt and full pants, and that wasn't fun, just being drenched and walking around and just interviewing (laughs) visitors, taking photos in the middle of the road with the backdrop of the mountain range, which is the popular social media shot. I was really surprised to see, yeah, what's just like, out trending uh, on social media when it comes to the, those gardens? When you go into the entrance, the first thing you will notice is all the no photos and no parking signs. And it will, there's about hundreds of them. I'm not even joking, like exploring the whole entire park. It's 400 acres. So you see social media, TikTok, Instagram. What am I missing? Even Twitter, too, I've seen people taking that infamous shot in the background in the middle of the road and you have security guards telling them hey you can't do that but you also have oncoming traffic dodging and weaving them I just went to Ho'omalahia just this past Tuesday but even before that two months ago there was an influx of visitors and it's to the point where you see these cars dodging and weaving and honking at them and yelling at them, hey, you can't take pictures here. Same thing on this past Tuesday, I saw two couples taking a photo in the middle of the road right in front of the no photo sign. (laughs) And I see um, the parks people come by actually telling them, hey, you see that sign, you can't take the photo there. And they said, yeah, they get off once they're gone back on there, witnessed that, took a photo. It was great. So, <laughs> Yeah, it, it must just be maddening. Uh, it, you know, and I mean, it is beautiful, and you do want to get, you know, a, a shot in your phone to remember your vacation. But, yeah, if you'd be, be more mindful of everybody else who uses the park. And because of this increase of uh, social media popularity, uh, the the botanical garden has become the darling for social media. And so that ha- that's prompting the Honolulu Department of Parks and Recreation to explore the idea of a fee and reservation system. And what that will entail, Director Jocelyn Sand of the botanical garden said it's still in discussion with the department and the surrounding communities that will be impacted. And here's what Jocelyn had to say about the reservation system. Well, we did notice the boom around the pandemic. And of course, you know, we were sorting out a lot of other more pressing issues at that time. And we noticed pretty quickly that it's not going down. It's known now. It's a destination now. And these levels are probably going to be permanent. And we know they're not sustainable. And then also there's just been a rapid uptick in other places that are doing it. And the idea of having to do a reservation for such a place has really become normalized. You know, we've had discussions with the Department of Natural Land and Resources who have done similar systems at Wayanapanapa and Diamond Head and Haina and, you know, Kauai and Lion Arboretum. UH uh, Manoa's uh, has also done a reservation system. And I get constant emails from people asking, do we need a reservation? So it's very much become normalized as all these places here and even on the mainland. So I would say this discussions and the reality of the fact that it's really something we need to do has been going on now for about a year and a half, two years, as we realize that the numbers aren't going to tick downward now. It wasn't crowded when I was there, but that was a few years ago. I mean, what do the numbers show? When I got the numbers, it's going back to 2016. That's the earliest I can get them. And since 2016, the visitor, the annual visitor count has more than doubled. So in 2016, the annual visitor count was 218,000. Going to 2022, 
it's 500 and more than 570,000. And if you're looking at the numbers right now, um, we start noticing that uptick in 2020, and that's during the COVID-19 pandemic. So I thought that was very interesting. So those numbers in 2020, the annual visitor count was 300, more than 396,000 visitors annually. And during the pandemic, we were all in lockdown. So that's when people are on their phones or there wasn't many people in Waikiki Beach, for example, or anywhere across the islands in Hawaii. And that's when you're actually seeing those um, those social media postings of the Ho'omaluhia Botanical Garden because there is no one there. You can actually sneak in. I wouldn't know just seeing it on um, social media, you're seeing more of those um, backdrops. People are skateboarding on that popular road. People are just driving and just, you know, no one was there. There's no security telling them what to do. So that's been a huge impact. And now there's also this um, nickname for Ho'omaluhia because of all those signs to say no photos and no parking. Um, that nickname is Maluhia just because <laughs> of all the all of the photo no photo signs so um, I didn't get to it was actually some of the visitors who told me um, when I went to visit Ho'omaluhia Botanical Garden I was trying to interview like these folks whether they were local or visitors um, I think they were probably visitors from out of state but I, I caught them uh, taking photos in the middle of the road so I just kind of walked up to them asking if they would how they would feel about a fear reservation system um, I interviewed exactly about seven to ten all of them declined because they probably because they got caught um, I mean it's totally fine but um, something like that also of uh, the it's the influx of visitors is also ex exhausting the staff that are there and since the part the park has been implemented back in um, around 1980s um, this the number of staff hasn't changed there's only been like about five like full-time staff that are around the park maybe like two or more contract security guards and two part-time employees and this is a 400 acre um, botanical garden so just having that many staff that has just been like stagnant throughout the years and you can't you can't enforce those those rules and these rules are non-binding it's not like it's illegal to take photos but it is a safety concern because when you go to Ho'omalahia it's just this narrow paved road there's no sidewalks and even there are cars that have been reported like stuck in the side if they do park on the side in the muddy area just to take that photo or sometimes you see like runners who um, just kind of block that road and this frustrates folks like uh Alma Focus, who has worked at the park for more than 50 years. And here's what Alma had to say. A lot of people take photos in the middle of the road or on the side of the road. And we have a very narrow road. And that road had to accommodate a two-way traffic and people walking. We do not have, you know, the pedestrian uh, walkway that can accommodate them. So it's unsafe for everybody, you know. And it just doesn't make sense. There are a lot of places and spots in the garden that they can take better photos without putting themselves in an harm's way or unsafe situation. What do the neighbors have to say? It's mixed reactions. There are some neighbors who are for the reservation and fee system. Some uh, some of them are against it. And uh, here's what Diane had to say, who is just down the street. There's a long line, so, you know, it'll block the driveway, so hard to get out. But people are nice, they let you get out. But also, they, they do park because a lot of times, they don't even want to go in the park necessarily. They just want to get that picture for Instagram. So they'll park, you know, along our streets. And that is a problem because there are more cars parking now. So it is kind of a 50-50 situation, but even, like, um, some... Some surveys had say that majority of people are in support of a fee and reservation system, but how that will look like, it's still in discussion. And the Department of Parks and Recreation would have to propose a bill before the council and go through that legislative process. And even they might have to look at a charter amendment to see where those fees would go, how it would be spent, if it would be going to staff or um, even um, improving the parks. Right. But they have uh, done a, a fee um, at the entrance to foster gardens in town so you know it shouldn't be that hard you would think but thank you so much Cassie thank you for having me
We've been talking with HPR's Cassie Ordonio. You can read uh, the story uh, uh, on our website later, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. On the next Fresh Air, we speak with David Hogg. Hogg became a prominent gun reform activist after surviving the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in Parkland, Florida, which killed 17 of his classmates and injured 17 others. We talk with him about the mental health challenges that come with experiencing gun violence and his efforts to change public perception about guns. Join us. Fresh air beginning this afternoon at 3 following On Point. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Foodland, celebrating 75 years of food, family, friends, and aloha, extending a warm mahalo to their customers. Foodland.com. It's time for your backyard quiz answer. We brought you back to a moment when the Hawaii island town of Hilo was under imminent threat from a lava flow. We asked you to name the man who commanded a U.S. military mission to save the town from that flow back in 1935. When the eruption began in November, it was initially thought to be non-threatening, but by mid-December, the lava had overflowed natural levees and was moving rapidly toward Hilo. The, plan, uh, the call went out for a plan to save the city, and two volcanologists, uh, Thomas Jager and Guido Giacomani, proposed using explosives dropped by military bombers to divert the flow. The plan was approved by the uh, Army, and 10 planes were sent by the U.S. Army Corps from Oahu to the Big Island. The bombs hit their targets, and lava stopped flowing several days later, although the connection between the bombing and that stoppage is still highly disputed. But no one disputes that the mission was planned by then-Lieutenant Colonel George S. Patton, who would later go on to fame as the controversial blood and guts general during World War II. Some of the unexploded ordnance bombs have been found by hikers in recent years, but the uh, State Department of Land and Natural Resources says the Army has rendered them inert. And congrats to our winner, Betsy Takisano of Kaneohe. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. It's World Oceans Day, and global communities celebrate the important role the ocean plays every day. Think of them as the lungs of our planet and a critical part of the biosphere. The International Union for Conservation of Nature reports that up to 14 million tons of plastic debris ends up in the ocean annually. The Conversations Lillian Song sat with, uh, uh, down with the Sustainable Coastlines co-founder Kahi Pakaro on Oceans Day last year to talk about how Hawaii consumers can make more informed decisions that will help keep our oceans clean. I'm hoping that my children get to enjoy a coastline, an ocean that is as vibrant and healthy as it was when I was a child. I want it to get better. And I, I see the, the broad awareness increasing. But at the same time, we have industries doubling down on their production of plastics. So the future is slightly grim, and it's going to take an additional grand awareness happening for us to be able to combat what industry is coming at us with. In your work, I'm sure you see the wide gamut. When you say plastics, I think top of mind usually is like a plastic bottle, maybe straws, which is the biggest culprit. The biggest culprit for Hawaii is the world's overconsumption of commercially fished seafood. It's not single-use plastics. The bans on single-use plastics will not reduce the amount of trash on our beaches in Hawaii. If we want a reduction in the marine debris washing ashore, we need to stop the demand for cheap seafood. 
here in the islands, we love our seafood. Yep. So when you say cheap yep. seafood, the easiest way to differentiate between local and cheap seafood is as a local going to your poke shop or food line or wherever you're getting your poke from. You're going to see two options. There's one that is injected with carbon monoxide to give it that nice, beautiful pink color. It's pre-frozen, caught seafood, mostly tuna, um, that is caught by who knows what country, who knows what type of labor situation, and who knows what type of fishing practices. And then there's a local fish. That's the much more expensive, still, I think, too cheap tuna. And that's line caught most likely by our long line fishing crews here in Hawaii, which arguably is not the best either. They are usually an American captain with foreign workers working on board. So the best to support if you can is is support your neighbor, your uncle, your auntie, who, whoever's out there fishing that you know that's doing it with just a line and a pole. And that's really what the resource is. Like we We love our poke so much that we are importing it from thousands of miles away and then placing it with carbon monoxide to bring the color back. And, and we think we're eating great, healthy seafood, but we're not thinking about the implications of the plastic that's falling overboard, the nets that get away and, and ghost fish. What's washing up on our coastlines? It's not single-use plastics. Primarily, it's commercial fishing gear. Dr. Jennifer Lynch. I don't know if you heard I know her well. Her. You do? Okay. So it was her report. Her research was saying that, you know, Maui County enacted the 2018 polystyrene ban. But in their research, they found that it had a very limited impact on Valley Isle beaches. She said that all the problems with plastic was really because of foreign countries. So what I'm hearing from you, Kahi, is that we as consumers if we are conscious of where we are sourcing or buying our fish or seafood, we can not allow our dollars to go towards these fishing fleets, which are the major culprits of plastics in the ocean? When you say we, let's say Hawaii, we're such a small market, but we can't point the fingers to other markets to do the same unless we also do the same, correct? So, yes, we can lead by example and demand less commercially fished seafood. We can support our local fisheries. We can support the long liners more, or we can even better support the guy who's going out and grabbing a couple. Maybe he's got three um, versus hundreds or thousands. Mm -hmm. um, but we can't point the fingers at other countries and other consumers if we're not doing it pono ourselves. So I would say, hey, Hawaii, let's lead by example. Let's be prepared to pay what it costs to eat fresh tuna, ahi, and from there, we can then show others this is what it takes to have clean beaches in Hawaii. So, Kahi, I always knew you through Sustainable Coastlines Hawaii. Surprisingly, I only learned today that you actually first started your career in real estate. My success in the nonprofit world really stemmed from a success in the for-profit world. But it took the diving into a, a corporate desk job and then a field job to really understand how business works. And in the 2009 crash of the real estate market, I found myself without a job, but with enough money to travel around the world for two years. That was really eye-opening for me. I realized that the places that I was going to visit, these places I always dreamed about, Morocco, Vietnam, Indonesia, Thailand, and the Philippines, were being destroyed by over-capitalism, over-development, pollution, tourism. And I realized I was very much part of the problem. And it didn't sit well with me. I didn't really, at that point, make the decision to make a career change or just something that sat in my subconscious. Upon returning back home to Hawaii and seeing our coastlines and the place I grew up surfing being more or less the epicenter of the plastic pollution crisis in Kailua Beach with the microplastic, I realized that the legacy that I wanted to leave on Hawaii was not in any more high-rise buildings, but rather something more impactful that would more or less allow for my youth and the youth after me to uh, be able to enjoy a coastline not decimated by plastic pollution. Being someone that is from Hawaii and really only got away in his you know late teens and early 20s and late 20s, I didn't understand how lucky we are here. And it wasn't until I got away that I realized, wow, we are some of the luckiest people in the entire world. It's a lot easier for us to reconnect to nature living in such beauty 
I think it's more difficult for people that live in urban centers to really recognize their symbiotic relationship with nature. Where we're at at this point is, unless we make this reconnection, then nature's going to get rid of us. I also just want to touch on Dr. Jennifer Lynch's statements. I think oftentimes the plastics industries took that as a, hey, why are we banning stuff if that's not really going to help? That's a completely false narrative. I really believe that these bans on polystyrene, these bans on single-use plastics are extremely important because, like it said on the website, it's a multi-pronged approach. It's not just one silver bullet. So we have to take this multi-pronged approach at stopping plastic at the source. We're not going to recycle our way. We're not going to clean our way out of this mess. But cleanups are one of the best ways to get us to clean our beaches, not just because you clean the beach, but because you, as a cleaner, start interacting with the things that you're finding and you start looking upstream. Where did this come from? And if I can stop it at the source, it'll never get into the ocean in the first place. And that's when our dollar really comes into matter, where how we spend our money. If we don't purchase it, then demand decreases. Demand decreases, supply decreases. So that's really the goal. It's that the easiest thing you can do is just go clean a beach and start asking yourself, where did this come from? That was H. Brazilian Song talking with Sustainable Coastlines, Hawaii co-founder Kahi Pakaro. The interview originally aired last year on World Oceans Day. does it for this hour up tomorrow we've got a hana show hana ho show planned for you our program will showcase first in hawaii got some feedback or questions call our talkback line 808-792-8217 email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org if you want to listen back to something you heard you can find the conversation on spotify apple or anywhere else you find your podcast it's also on our website i'm Catherine cruz join us tomorrow for more of the conversation